The title of today's message is this, The Dangerous Errors and Damning Heresies of C.S. Lewis. Now, this is useful, one, to expose a notorious heretic for that which he is. He is not a theologian. He's not an apologist of the Christian faith. He's a notorious heretic. Unfortunately, he's not notorious for his heresies. He's notorious as an apologist, as a theologian, as a defender of the faith. And that's a tragedy, and you will learn why in the coming hour. Now, simultaneous to this, I'll be uplifting the one true faith, the one true gospel, the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I'll be uplifting the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, authority of holy scriptures. I'll be uplifting a literal six-day creation, as the Bible clearly declares. I'll be uplifting a literal hell, as the Bible declares, the fullness of the wrath of the Almighty upon sinners, unless Jesus takes that wrath in your place by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I'll be uplifting the reality that Roman Catholicism is a soul-damning cult and not our friend. I will do all that in the context of a topical sermon titled, The Dangerous Errors and Damning Heresies of C.S. Lewis. Now, there are many pages of notes here. I hope to get to them all. We shall see how far we get. I'm going to let Jay Saunders open up here. Jay Saunders is an author of many blogs, but this one on the Brian Beacon. The Brian Beacon was a blog started by my friend Richard Bennett. Richard Bennett was a priest born in Ireland, raised in Ireland, and sent to Rome to be trained as a priest. And by the grace of God, the Lord rescued him, brought him to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and then sent him to Portland, Oregon, of all places, where I came to attend Bible college and met him. And we were kindred spirits. He smelled, yes, a bit more like Reformation fire than I did. And he had that wonderful Irish accent. And yet we both were reformers by the grace of God. I was privileged to minister the gospel on the streets with him on occasion and privileged to have him serve here preaching the word of God in our pulpit on occasion until the Lord moved him providentially to Texas to serve in a local church there until his death. He is now in glory and his wife is with him there, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But Richard Bennett's ministry continues on ministering to Roman Catholics. On Richard Bennett's website is a blog about C.S. Lewis. Why? Because C.S. Lewis is known by the discerning as a gateway drug to Roman Catholicism. Hear that again. C.S. Lewis is a gateway drug to Roman Catholicism. There are many who converted from Christianity in some form or another to Roman Catholicism because of their reading of C.S. Lewis. They point to C.S. Lewis and they say, he helped me. I myself have stood on the street ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ when a priest came up trying to join us outside an abortion clinic to find commonality. And it was my privilege to bring the true gospel to him, call him to repentance and faith in the true Christ, not a wafer in a cup eaten and drank for justification. And in the midst of that conversation, the Roman Catholic priest says to me of his own accord, you know, I've always thought of C.S. Lewis as a gateway drug to Roman Catholicism. And in that, my Roman Catholic priest friend and I had complete agreement. And so you need to understand that as well. The article by Jay Saunders, I'll just read a portion of it for you. This is a quote of Mark Brumley, president of Roman Catholic Ignatius Press. It is largely due to Lewis and Anglican that I converted to the Catholic Church. Another quote from R.A. Benthal, professor of literature, says this, Lewis has been credited In recent years, with setting numerous people on the road to Rome, such Catholic converts have included many of the serious scholars and disciples of Lewis, some of whom knew him before he died. Clive Staples Lewis, that's his name, C.S., Clive Staples Lewis was born in Belfast, North Ireland in 1898 to Protestant parents and for most of his adult life was a tutor at Oxford and a lecturer of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge. He wrote more than 30 books, and his most popular accomplishments include the Chronicles of Narnia, the Screwtape Letters, and Mere Christianity. 
At age 32, through the encouragement of his devout Roman Catholic friend and colleague, J.R.R. Tolkien, of Lord of the Rings, notoriety, and after reading The Everlasting Man by Roman Catholic convert G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis was converted to Christianity from atheism and returned to his Anglican roots, where he remained until his death in 1963. Now, he was converted to Christian religion, not to the Christian faith. Although Lewis never converted to Roman Catholicism, inwardly he leaned towards certain of its dogmas so that his colleagues considered him to be Anglo-Catholic. Again, one of his very best friends was J.R.R. Tolkien, a Roman Catholic. And he was not an apologist or an evangelist in J.R.R. Tolkien's life, but in his mind, a fellow Christian. It is obvious by the support given C.S. Lewis today by some conservative Christians, great ignorance exists about his life and beliefs. Therefore, we have included several pertinent quotations, individually cited, gleaned from both Lewis's own writings and those of his official biographers and personal friends in order to enlighten and awaken. For it is an indisputable fact that to those who seek reconciliation with Rome, C.S. Lewis is a bridge. Quote, Certainly the path he had taken to mere Christianity was very largely the Roman road along which guides such as Chesterton and Tolkien and Patmore and Dante and Newman had led him. After more than two decades in the Roman Catholic Church, I have met or learned of scores of far more illustrious Catholic converts who likewise list Lewis on their spiritual resumes. When I converted to Catholicism in my teens, it was largely due to reading Lewis' screw tape letters. G.K. Chesterton and Lewis sort of guided me into the Catholic Church, even though Lewis wasn't a Catholic. In 1952, C.S. Lewis published his theological work, Mere Christianity, which originally began in 1942 as a three-part BBC radio broadcast. As the title suggests, Lewis focused on the mere or common ground he felt existed in Christianity and tried to restate a theology without controversy. The result is a generic Christianity that suits anyone anywhere who can anyway relate to God. Lewis bent over backwards trying to find common ground with all denominations, omitting any doctrine that may be deemed offensive. Now you also need to know this. Not only did he deliberately make it as ecumenical, ecumenical as possible, he also failed to quote the Word of God in the entire first half of a book that is supposed to be an apology or a defense or a declaration of Christianity. In the second half of the book, it's my understanding, he quoted two scriptures. And so, in what is considered one of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, there's virtually zero scripture referenced. That is a significant problem. Not just with the book, but with his entire life and testimony. More on that later. In his attempt to bend over backwards to find common ground, Tolkien, a Roman Catholic, disparagingly said he is every man's theologian, meaning he is not a theologian of any one Christian sect or faith. He is every man's theologian. He didn't mean it to be a compliment. Even Mormons find his writings... Inoffensive, and that's what you got to understand. Roman Catholics love his writings. Heretics love his writings. And yes, many undiscerning, ill-informed Christians love his writings. Lewis is widely quoted from tried and true defenders of Mormon orthodoxy. It just shows the extraordinary acceptability and usefulness of C.S. Lewis, because of course most of what he says is perfectly acceptable to Mormons. Mere Christianity has long been regarded as a classic exposition of the Christian faith. Yet, oddly enough, not one Bible verse is quoted in the first half of the book, and only three, three, I was wrong, sorry, three partial verses in the latter half with no Bible references in the entire book. So partial references with no actual Bible references. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. How can we present Christianity without its foundation, the Word of God? Mere Christianity is a compilation of four essays, transcripts that were sent to four clergymen to gauge their reaction with regard to its common ground. This is a quote of C.S. Lewis. I tried to guard against this, putting forth his Anglican beliefs, by sending the original script of what is now book two to four clergymen. Anglican, Methodist, 
Presbyterian and Roman Catholic, and asking for their criticism. The Methodists thought I had not said enough about faith. The Roman Catholic thought I had gone rather too far about the comparative unimportance of theories and explanation of the atonement. Otherwise, all five of us were agreed. If you write a defense of the Christian faith in which Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Roman Catholics are all agreed, you have failed. C.S. Lewis said elsewhere, you will not learn from me whether you ought to become an Anglican, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or a Roman Catholic. This omission is intentional. There is no mystery about my position. The best service I could do was to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. In other words, C.S. Lewis was not a Christian. He did not believe the Christian faith. He did not believe the Christian gospel. He wanted to build unity. He wanted to be a bridge. He wanted to reunite the church that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Roman Catholic Church. He consciously states it, not just here, but many other places, but for the sake of time, we'll leave off there. Now, I have picked seven errors and heresies out of a list of many more that I could speak to, but I I see these as the most serious and obvious, undeniable errors or heresies of C.S. Lewis, and so I will lift them up one by one. Several of them could be under one category, could be under one point, ultimately, C.S. Lewis did not believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, and authority of Holy Scripture. And it's based upon that error that ultimately his heresies come. And anyone who does not believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, authority of Scripture is open to all sorts of error and heresy. And thus, they have set up for themselves another authority over and above the authority of Scripture. For if Scripture is not the final authority then there is an authority outside of Scripture, whether you say it's a church or the church or the Roman Catholic Church or just you yourself or every individual. It's inspired as it inspires me. It's authoritative as as I'm happy to sit under its authority or not. And so we Christians, born again from above, illumined by the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 as the inspired, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative Word of God. And by the way, we do that for good reason, because Jesus upheld the Scriptures as inspired, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative. The Lord Jesus upheld both the inspiration of Scripture and the preservation of Scripture explicitly. He said, not one jot or tittle will pass away to the heavens and the earth pass away. Jot or tittle. Not just the words, not just the sentences, not just the ideas behind them, but the portions of the letters therein. Not one will be lost until the heavens and the earth pass away. And even then they will not be lost. But he's making an extreme statement. Even should the heavens and earth pass away, these would not and shall not. They're preserved by God. It is the eternal word of God. The Lord Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word. Plenary, verbal, plenary inspiration. And so we receive the Lord Jesus' position on Scripture because we are followers of Jesus. So we uphold the inspiration, the theonoustos. The Scriptures are God-breathed, says the Apostle Paul to Timothy and all the church, and thus useful, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete, thoroughly equipped. But if you reject the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, and authority of Scripture, you will not be complete or thoroughly equipped. And frankly, you're a rebel. You're a rebel against God and his revelation of himself. And you have set yourself up as an authority over God. That is a dangerous position to be in. And that's the exact position C.S. Lewis was in. First point, evolution is a valid scientific explanation for life. C.S. Lewis bowed before the authority of Darwin, not that of Scripture. And he brought Scripture beneath Darwin. C.S. Lewis openly accepted that evolution was a valid scientific theory of origins. His most famous book, Mere Christianity, his 
defense of the Christian faith includes the concept of evolution. It says this, quote, Thousands of centuries ago, huge, very heavily armored creatures were evolved. If anyone had at that time been watching the course of evolution, he would probably have expected that it was going to go on to heavier and heavier armor. But he would have been wrong. The future had a card up its sleeve, which nothing at that time would have led him to expect. It was going to spring on him a little naked, unarmored animal, which had better brains. And with those brains, they were going to master the whole planet. They were not merely going to have more power than the prehistoric monsters. They were going to have a new kind of power. The next step was not only going to be different, but different with a new kind of difference. The stream of evolution was not going to flow in the direction in which he saw it flowing. It was, in fact, going to take a sharp bend. Now, if you care to talk in these terms, the Christian view is precisely that next step. It has already appeared, and it is really new. It is not a change from brainy men to brainier men. It's a change that goes off in a totally different direction, a change from being creatures of God to being sons of God. And so C.S. Lewis rejects a literal six-day creation. He rejects, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He rejects God's account of creating all life. In those six days, he rejects God's special creation of animals and God's special creation of man in his image. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. He rejects a literal Adam. He rejects a literal Eve. He rejects the literal fall of Adam and Eve into sin in the literal garden with a literal Satan. He rejects it all. And yet millions look to C.S. Lewis as an authority on Christianity, as a chief apologist and theologian to be trusted. No, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is a false teacher. He is a heretic who puffs up his chest with the authority of Darwin emboldening him and stands against Holy Scripture from its very first chapter. And book. That quote was from Mere Christianity in the chapter titled The Next Man. The second quote here is from The Problem of Pain, his book, The Problem of Pain. Quote For long centuries, God perfected the animal form which was to become the vehicle of humanity and the image of himself. So for Long centuries, this single-celled organism graduated to this animal, graduated, no doubt, to a bipedal animal, stood erect as an ape-like humanoid, and then God breathed his spirit in. That's the worldview. That's the position that he is putting forth. For long centuries, God perfected the animal form, which was to become the vehicle of humanity and the image of himself. He gave it hands whose thumb could be applied to each of the fingers and jaws and teeth and throat capable of articulation and a brain sufficiently complex to execute all the material motions whereby rational thought is incarnated. And I say yes and amen. He did exactly that on day six. And his name was Adam. And from him, we have all descended. The creature may have existed for ages in this state before it became man. It may even have been clever enough to make things which a modern archaeologist, archaeologist would accept as proof of its humanity, but it was only an animal because of all its physical and psychological processes were directed to purely material and natural ends. Then in the fullness of time, God caused to descend upon the organism, both on its psychology and physiology, a new kind of consciousness, which could say I and me, which could look upon itself as an object, which knew God, which could make judgments of truth, beauty, and goodness, and with which was also far above time that it could perceive time flowing past. He speaks with the authority of a prophet. He speaks with the authority of Scripture. If this is true, then this is holy writ. Copy it down in the back of your Bible. This is extra-biblical revelation. This is another creation account for mankind. And he speaks with absolute certitude that you're to submit to, 
and receive is the Christian worldview, Christian dogma and truth. And it is a lie, a bold lie. As I said, these first few points could be under the same title. C.S. Lewis rejected the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation of authority of Holy Scripture. The first point was evolution is a valid scientific explanation for life. Secondly, Adam and Eve were not literal people, which you already get that from the problem of pain, where he says, for long centuries, God perfected the animal from which was to become the vehicle of humanity in the image of himself. Thus, Adam and Eve were not literal people. So he rejects a literal creation of the animal kingdom, as the Bible clearly records on day six, and he rejects a literal creation of Adam and Eve in God's image on day six, where God says, let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them. And then there's Adam. And then God brings to Adam all the creatures and Adam names them. Go figure. He could articulate speech on day one of his creation. He names them. And lo, there was not a a creature found as a suitable helpmate. So God put him to sleep, took a rib and made Eve. And C.S. Lewis audaciously rejects all of that. The foundation of the Bible, the creation account of the heavens and the earth, animal life, and a literal Adam and Eve. What, what is Jesus called in the New Testament in relationship to the literal Adam of the Old Testament? He's called the second Adam. What does the New Testament say about the first Adam? That, that through Adam, death came to all men. And that through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, life comes to all men, all men in Christ. You do great damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ when you do great damage to the literal account of Genesis and God's creation of the heavens and the earth in six literal days and explicitly God's creation of Adam and Eve and their fall. Where's the fall? C.S. Lewis boldly does away with the fall completely. That's a fiction. The fall of mankind is made a fiction. Any man with such a low view of Scripture is not sound. He's not worth your time reading. He is not worth quoting. In fact, quite the contrary. It is a shame to quote him. Third point. The Old Testament is part legendary, part myth. You heard me right. C.S. Lewis firmly believe that the Old Testament is part legend, part myth. And I quote him from his book, Is Theology Poetry? Quote, The earliest stratum of the Old Testament contains many truths in a form which I take to be legendary or even mythical, hanging in the clouds. But gradually the truth condenses, becomes more and more historical. From things like Noah's Ark, or the sun standing still upon Agilon, you come down to the court memoirs of King David. In other words, you go from the fanciful and fictitious Noah's Ark and the sun standing still to the more real memoirs of King David. Finally, you reach the New Testament and its history reigns supreme. Oh, the New Testament, now that's history. That's bold. That's audacious. That's setting yourself up as judge over God's word instead of God's word judge over you. You are the definer of truth. You are the authority, not God's word being the definer of truth and the final authority. He says, Finally, you reach the New Testament and history reigns supreme and the truth is incarnate. And incarnate here is more than a metaphor. It's not an accidental resemblance that from that point of view of being is stated in the form of God became man should involve, from that point of view, a human knowledge. The statement, myth became fact. Ramblings. Elsewhere, he says this, I have therefore no difficulty in accepting, say, the view of those scholars who tell us that the account of creation in Genesis is derived from earlier Semitic stories, which were pagan and mythical. We must, of course, be quite clear what derived from means. Stories do not reproduce their species like mice. They are told by men, 
Each retailer either repeats exactly what his predecessor had told him or else changes it. He may change it unknowingly or deliberately. If he changes it deliberately, his invention, his sense of form, his ethics, his ideas of what is fit or edifying or merely interesting all come in. If unknowingly, then his unconscious, which is so largely responsible for our forgettings, has been at work. Thus, at every step in what is called a little misleadingly the evolution of a story, a man... All he is and all his attitudes are involved. And no good work is done anywhere without aid from the Father of lights. So in his words, that's what Scripture is. That's what the Old Testament is. These stories that have been coalesced and passed down errantly, generation by generation, man to man, and they mix in their own thoughts and their own opinions and their own feelings and experiences by accident or deliberately. Nevertheless, he's going to say, nevertheless, No good work is done anywhere without aid from the Father of lights. When a series of such retellings turns a creation story, which at first had almost no religious or metaphysical significance into a story, which achieves the idea of a true creation and of a transcendent creator, as Genesis does, then nothing will make me believe that some of the retellers or some some one of them has not been guided by God. That's Lewis's view of the Old Testament, and specifically the Genesis creation account. In the cataloged and recorded letters of C.S. Lewis, he said this, quote, Whether a particular passage is rightly translated or is myth, but of course myth, especially chosen by God from among countless myths to carry a spiritual truth, or history, but we must not use the Bible as our fathers too often did, as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts can be taken for use as weapons. And so he's far more comfortable with the Bible being myth than the Bible being absolute truth, because the Bible being absolute truth is going to lend it to being used as a weapon, a sword to what? Divide truth from error. The authoritative weapon or sword that divides truth from error. We must guard against that. Let us revel in myth that the Father of lights uses nevertheless for our spiritual benefit. Does this sound remotely Christian? No. Does it sound remotely orthodox, theologically? Sound. No. Should C.S. Lewis be trusted, quoted, listened to? No, he should not. Fourth, and... Most important point, and this is where a low view of Scripture leads. This is where it leads to a direct assault on the gospel, invariably. Fourth point, Christ's substitutionary atonement is immoral and silly. The penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is the biblical doctrine known commonly as the gospel or the good news. That God the Father punished God the Son, who willingly came into the world through the womb of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man, to bear our iniquities and the eternal wrath of God that they deserve as a substitute in our place. C.S. Lewis mocked and rejected the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And he did it in mere Christianity. And yet when I warn people about C.S. Lewis, so often men come at me furious because their commitment and love of C.S. Lewis rises higher at times than their love of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And that is alarming. I I haven't seen the kind of raw emotion and and love-based defense of Jesus rise to the level that some of these men go to in their love and defense of C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. Quote, Now before I became a Christian, I was under the impression that the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what the point of his dying was. Now, unpack that sentence. Before I became a Christian, I was under the impression that the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what 
the point of his dying was. In other words, <laughs> then I realized you didn't have to believe anything in particular about the meaning of the death of Jesus. And I became a Christian. In other words, I realized I did not have to believe the gospel. I realized I did not have to believe the meaning of Jesus' death upon the cross. That he died as our substitute in our place, taking the fullness of the wrath, the Almighty, taking the the curse of sin, which is death, in our place as the penal substitutionary atonement. I realized I didn't have to believe the gospel, and then I became a Christian. Great testimony, Mr. Lewis. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebel, but Christ volunteered to be punished instead, and so God let us off. Now, don't miss, that is a mocking sentence. According to that theory, it's just a theory. It's not the clear declaration of Holy Scripture regarding what the gospel is. It's just, you know, a theory. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebel. And so it's belittling God for wanting to punish men. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men. How ridiculous is that? For joining the great rebel, Satan. Yes. Is that a theory that God wanted to punish men for joining Satan? No, that's a fundamental reality to the Christian faith. Made a mock-worthy theory. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebel, but Christ volunteered to be punished instead, so God let us off. Is that not a rather flippant explanation? It is ugly. It is flippant. It is mocking. And it should infuriate you because you love God and you love his gospel and you love perishing sinners. So you hate that. You hate that. A man mocking the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mocking the meaning of his cross. Mocking the idea that what it's really all about, the entire Bible, in fact, the entire cosmos, what it's really all about is the glory of God and the redemption of sinners. That God in his holiness would pour out wrath upon his son in the place of sinners because God is also loving and merciful. And so he's made a way of salvation, a way of escape, a way of forgiveness through his son bearing the due penalty of our sin in our place. He is mocking the entire story of Scripture, the entire story of all history, and all creation. He's mocking the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, according to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebel. Isn't it interesting? C.S. Lewis clearly, dogmatically, has submitted himself to and declares the theory of evolution as fact. Fact, so certain that Scripture must bow to it. But the substitutionary atonement, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's just a mere theory to be dismissed and mocked. And thus, the foundation of C.S. Lewis's error and heresy is his rejection of the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, and authority of Scripture. He goes on to say, Now I admit that even this theory does not seem quite so immoral and silly as it used to. And so he has long held that it's immoral. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is immoral and silly. And it doesn't seem quite as immoral and silly as it used to. That's just evil. But that's not the point I want to make. What I came to see later on was that neither this story nor another is Christianity. The central belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. No. 
what all Christians are agreed on is that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, was crucified for sinners in their place. Took the fullness of the wrath, the Almighty, that their sins deserved, and pronounced to die. It is finished. The justice of God is satisfied. Sin is propitiated, atoned for. This point, this heresy, this assault on Christ's substitutionary atonement, being immoral and silly, is held by a local seminary professor by the name of Tim Mackey that you've heard me speak of before. Tim Mackey is also the key spokesman and teacher of the Bible Project. Tim Mackey also joins C.S. Lewis in his mocking of the wisdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Tim Mackey says this, quote, God is holy and he's perfect. You're not. So God has to kill you. He needs his pound of flesh in the name of his justice. So he's going to kill you because he's angry at you. But instead, he's going to kill Jesus. And he takes out his anger on Jesus. And then he allows you when you die to go to the good place and not the bad place so that you can sing forever the praises of God who didn't kill you. I'm creating a caricature. But for some of us, you might think that, yeah, isn't that the story of Christianity? Isn't that what Christians believe? This man is pure evil. And he's training the next generation of pastors and missionaries right up the street at Western Seminary. His online teachings have been listened to and watched by the hundreds of thousands. These heresies that C.S. Lewis championed have borne their fruit. They've gone to seed. They're all around us. He has produced countless heretics like Tim Mackey, who come boldly, quoting C.S. Lewis for authority. For they are kindred spirits, assaulting the heart of our faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, mocking God, mocking His justice, mocking His wrath, mocking hell, mocking the cross, and reimagining all of it profoundly evil. But Tim Mackey is not alone. Atheist Richard Dawkins describes the substitutionary atonement as, quote, vicious, sadomasochist, and repellent. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? You see, what C.S. Lewis taught in mere Christianity, what Tim Mackey is teaching on his Bible project and in the Western Seminary, is what Richard Dawkins, notorious atheist and hater of God, also believes. How about the atheist Christopher Hitchens, who says, quote, Ask yourself the question, how moral is the following? I am told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing it and in circumstances so ghastly that had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try to stop it. In consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins are forgiven me and I may hope to enjoy eternal life. You know what's interesting? Is C.S. Lewis, Tim Mackey, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens all have the same mocking tone. They all have the same message. Slightly different words, same mocking, same message. That should alarm you. That should forever stop you from quoting C.S. Lewis. From thinking he is a Christian brother, or a Christian theologian, or a Christian apologist. One more quote from the emergent heretic Brian McLaren. You might remember the emergent movement. You might remember Doug Paget, one of the other famous emergent so-called pastors who wrote book after book, reimagining preaching, reimagining the church. Well, this is what C.S. Lewis, Tim Mackey, this is what they're doing, reimagining Jesus, the gospel, the whole story of the Bible. They're just early emergents. And Brian McLaren is one of their brethren, but not a Christian brother. Brian McLaren 
says, quote, the traditional understanding of the atonement says that God asks of us something that God is incapable of himself. God asks us to forgive people, but God is incapable of forgiving. God can't forgive unless he punishes somebody in the place of the person he was going to forgive. God doesn't say to you, forgive your wife, and then go kick the dog to vent your anger. God asks you to actually forgive, and there's a certain sense that a common understanding of the atonement presents a God who is incapable of forgiving unless he kicks somebody else. Again, slightly different words, but... All of these men are mocking God, mocking His justice, mocking His holiness, mocking judgment in hell, mocking the cross and God's judgment poured out upon Jesus Christ as a substitutionary atonement in our place. When your position on the atonement is for all intents and purposes synonymous with that of notorious heretics and atheists, you are not a Christian. You are not a friend of God. You are an enemy of God and his gospel. What does the Bible say about the atonement of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, it turns out the Bible is clear about the atonement after all. That God the Father literally made God the Son sin for us in our place that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 Peter 2.24 Who Himself, speaking of Jesus, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Him, Jesus, literally taking upon himself our sins upon that cross, suffering and dying for them. Thus, we in Christ died with him, that we might live to righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed? By his stripes. By him taking the wrath that we deserve, we are healed. Healed of the curse of sin, which is death. How about Isaiah Now, mind you, I I could preach for weeks on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. From Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, this is the smallest snapshot. But how about Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53. Verse 1. Who has believed our report? Well, not C.S. Lewis. Not Tim Mackey. Not Brian McLaren. And certainly not Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins. But all Christians have. All actual Christians have believed this report. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him like a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken and smitten. Does that sound familiar? We sang that hymn today. Stricken and smitten by God. Why? Why? Because he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And what is our grief and our sorrow? Our sin and the wage of sin, which is death. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, a literal substitutionary atonement. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement from God the Father, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, a literal substitutionary atonement. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Literal substitutionary atonement. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? Not C.S. Lewis, not Tim Mackey, 
not Brian McLaren, and obviously not Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. Who will declare his generation for he was cut off in the land of the living? For the transgressions of my people he was stricken in their place as a substitute. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was without sin, yet he became sin for us. First Corinthians. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The father bruised the son because the son became sin for us. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Literal substitutionary atonement, the heart of our faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and all pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He took the curse of sin, which was death. And he numbered, he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That is the good news of the gospel. That is penal substitutionary atonement. That is the heart of our faith that C.S. Lewis mocks as immoral and silly. R.C. Sproul's Legionnaire Ministries says this, In penal substitution, the penalty that is due to us for our transgression is paid by a substitute, namely Jesus Christ. The principle of penal substitution undergirds the old covenant sacrificial system. God told Adam that the penalty for sin was death, Genesis 2, 16-17. In the old covenant sacrifices, the people placed their hands on the sacrificial animals, thereby identifying with them, and then the animals were put to death, see Leviticus 4. This depicted the transfer of sin and guilt from the sinner to the substitute. The sinner could live because the animal died in the sinner's place, bearing the punishment that the sinner deserved. The entire Bible is about substitutionary atonement. But since it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Hebrews 10.4, the animal sacrifices of the old covenant did not affect true atonement. They were types and shadows that pointed to the only true atoning sacrifice, which was offered once for all on Calvary by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This final and only effective act of penal substitution was foreshadowed by the entire old covenant sacrificial system and explicitly predicted in Isaiah 53. The prophet tells us that God laid on the suffering servant Christ our iniquity. Our sin was transferred to Him in the atonement. He was pierced and crushed for our iniquities, cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. In other words, Christ endured the punishment His people deserve in their place. If we trust in Him alone for salvation, we need not fear eternal death, for Jesus bore our sin on the cross so that we will not receive everlasting judgment. And that's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not mock-worthy, it's praise-worthy. And those that mock it, damn their own souls. And those that are happy to hear them mock it, give evidence that they're damned with them. And those that love mockers of Jesus and His gospel more than Jesus and His gospel are not Christians. Where is our love of the King? Where is our love of the Savior? We would prefer an English author over the author of eternal life. I say that I trust to none here, but if it is you, and I do not know of one here that would be in that category, but if it's you, repent, dear one. But hear me, there are many that will hear this message, and there are many that have heard this message in one form or another from me and others who have preferred C.S. Lewis over Jesus Christ and his gospel. Who have risen with great zeal to defend C.S. Lewis and shown no zeal for Jesus Christ and his gospel to their shame. 
which is demonstrable evidence that they do not know Christ. It's one thing to ignorantly quote and promote C.S. Lewis. It's another to know clearly and to hear clearly definite quotes and the definite reality of who he was and what he taught, not in some obscure place, but in his most famous work, Mere Christianity. And perhaps his second most famous work, The Problem of Pain. And to still love him and celebrate him and promote him. That is scary. That is scary. So first, evolution is a valid scientific explanation for life. Second, Adam and Eve were not literal people. Third, the Old Testament is part legendary, part myth. If I was telling you these facts about anyone else without a name, would you be thinking, hey, that's a, that's a sound Christian author. I think I'll recommend his book. I think I'll quote him in my next sermon or my next blog or the next Christmas party when I'm trying to explain to people truths about God and Jesus. No. But because his name is C.S. Lewis, we will dismiss the fact that he says evolution is a valid explanation for life over and above Scripture, that Adam and Eve were not literal people, that the Old Testament is part legend, part myth, and worst of all, that Christ's substitutionary atonement is immoral and silly. Do I sound angry? I am. And you should be too. You should be too. Because this notorious heretic, for decade after decade after decade, has had a wide open door to the body of Christ. And he has helped usher Christians out of the body of Christ into heretical apostasy in in the form of that which Tim Mackey would present, or that which Brian McLaren and Doug Paget would present, or that which the Pope of Rome would present. He is a gateway drug to heresy of many kinds. Fifth, good Buddhists and other good pagans go to heaven. Good Buddhists and other good pagans go to heaven. C.S. Lewis, quote, There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he might still say he believed it, the Buddhist teaching on certain points. Many of the good pagans, long before Christ's birth, may have been in this position. And where do you think Lewis wrote this? Some obscure place? Wrote it on a napkin someplace somebody found. C.S. Lewis wrote this. That is in mere Christianity. His grand defense of the Christian faith is an assault on the Christian faith. And I have talked to man after man warning them of C.S. Lewis, and they said, look, I read Mere Christianity. It was great. It was sound. Well, hear me, you missed something. You fell asleep. You dozed off. You checked out at some punctuated points where he lit the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ on fire with his hellish pen. And so if that was you, I'm speaking to the broader world out there, then simply admit it and say, I was in error. I thought... He was a hero of the faith because that's how he had been presented to me and I must have missed those points. But don't stand stubbornly to defend an obvious heretic. To be a Christian, you've got to believe the gospel. You've got to believe John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. You have to believe John 3.18. I know it. It's so narrow-minded of me. It's like as narrow as, oh, I get it, the narrow way, which few shall find, and broad is the way of destruction, Jesus. John 3.18. He who believes in him, believes in him, is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The name, oh, the name matters. Because the person matters. Because his work matters. Because Romans 10 matters. 
If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised the dead, you shall be saved. Not if you're a good Buddhist. You're actually a good Christian, even though you know nothing of Jesus. You do not profess him. You haven't bent your knee to him. You haven't confessed him. You don't believe he died and rose again. You're an unbelieving, unrepentant Buddhist. Or are you just a good pagan? A good pagan. Are there any good Buddhists? Are there any good pagans? Are there any good human beings? No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which takes us back to the first point. C.S. Lewis did not believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, and authority of Scripture. Thus, he didn't believe the fundamental message of Scripture that God is holy and human beings are not. And the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God because God is holy and human beings are not. And Psalm 711, God is a just judge and he's angry with the wicked every day. Once again, C.S. Lewis says, there are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. So basically he's talking about good deeds. Does Buddhism exhort good deeds? Yes, it does exhort some good deeds. Does Islam? Yes. Does Mormonism? Yes. Do most religions, even, by the way, Satanism? Yes. Oh, so as long as you're good Satanist, good Mormon, good Buddhist, good Hindu, good Muslim, you're actually responding to Jesus. Now, what salvation is that? Is that a salvation of substitutionary atonement or salvation of works righteousness. That would be a salvation of works righteousness. That they are working their way as good people, as good religionists and false religions and cults. They are responding to God in some secret way and doing good. And therefore they're saved through their good deeds. That is 100% Contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is 180 degrees in the wrong direction. That is what the Bible calls, what Jesus called what? The broad way that leads to destruction and there are many that go thereby. How about John 3.36? Who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. We need some clarity here, some basic gospel clarity. There are no good Buddhists. There are no good pagans. There are no saved non-believers. You must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. How about Acts 4.12? There's one name, excuse me, there is salvation in no other. There is one name under the heaven given to men by which we must be saved. C.S. Lewis was a minister of another gospel that is not another gospel, which Galatians speaks to explicitly and pronounces the anathema upon twice over. And the apostle Paul said, whether I himself or an angel from heaven bring any other gospel to you, let it be anathema. Hear me, whether Clive Lewis or Tim Mackey or Doug Paget or Brian McLaren bring another gospel to you that is not another, let them be under the anathema. What does 2 Thessalonians say regarding this this good Buddhist concept, this good pagan concept going to heaven? It says this, Jesus Christ is returning, now the scripture, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. That Jesus Christ is righteously, justly, in all holiness, returning in flaming fire, to take vengeance on those who do not know God. Not knowing God is not a defense. It's not innocence. They have suppressed the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Romans 1 makes explicitly clear. They knew him, and yet they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They chose the God of self. They chose the God of, or the gods of Hinduism. They chose the false God of Islam. They chose the false God of the wafer and the cup in Rome. 
But they did not bend their knee to the one true God and his son or believe his gospel. Thus, Jesus is coming justly in all holiness with flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's got to be believed. The gospel must be believed to the point of obedience. Not even just a casual belief in the gospel saves. It is a radical belief in the gospel. An unbelief in the gospel will not save. A casual belief in the gospel is no safe ground. Christ is coming with fiery vengeance for those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But C.S. Lewis has boldly, authoritatively, as a false prophet of Satan, just declared that good Buddhists and good pagans who do not believe the gospel, who do not know God, are nevertheless going to be saved and in heaven. Oh, that's the fifth point. We'll finish up quickly. The sixth, purgatory is real. Purgatory is real. The influence of Rome was real in C.S. Lewis's life. Purgatory is real. Now, he had his nuance of purgatory. It wasn't exactly Roman Catholic purgatory. But he says this, quote, <coughs> excuse me, quote, Of course I pray for the dead. The action is so spontaneous, so all but inevitable, that only the most compulsive theological case against it would deter me. And I hardly know how the rest of my prayers would survive if those for the dead were forbidden. At our age, the majority of those we love best are dead. What sort of intercourse with God could I have if what I love best were unmentionable to Him? I believe in purgatory. There you have it. I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering. What happened to to Telestai? You see, because he didn't believe in the substitutionary atonement, he did believe in purgatory. Because it isn't finished, we need purgatory. Because he believes good Buddhists and good pagans are working their way to heaven, he believes you too can work your way to heaven even after death in purgatory. C.S. Lewis was not a Christian. He was a false teacher and a heretic. He was and is a danger to souls. I mean, I could speak of, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that would include both in life and after death. By grace you have been saved through faith, a gift of God, not of you. It's Christ's work. It's His hands pierced. His righteous works applied. Not your works in life and certainly not in death. We could speak of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, had by himself purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If he purged our sins, do we need purgatory? No, because to tell us not, because he was our substitutionary atonement. He purged our sins. How about Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become, a higher, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices. There are no more sacrifices because he sacrificed himself. Therefore, we cannot offer up ourselves in purgatory as a sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So you're either in Christ, and in Christ you have obtained eternal redemption. He has purged by himself. He has purged our sins, or you're outside of Christ, and you are damned. You have no hope. Outside, you die outside of Christ. There is no purgatory. That is a fiction of the Roman Catholic Church. A fiction that damns souls, thinking, you know what? I'm not real clear on Jesus, and I kind of love my sin, but I can make it up in purgatory afterwards. Satan loves the doctrine of purgatory. He loves it. And so did C.S. Lewis. How about uh, Hebrews 9, 22? According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Oh, Salvation is through the shedding of blood, the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, said John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Oh, unless you want to go to purgatory, and that will also take away your sins, says Clive. 
Well, I could go on and on. The scriptures that expose purgatory is a soul-damning sin, but I'll not. I'll not. The final error slash heresy is that hell is not real. Hell is not real. Oddly enough, Tim Mackey doesn't just join C.S. Lewis in denying the substitutionary atonement and mocking the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He denies and mocks the reality of eternity in hell. And he quotes C.S. Lewis, oddly enough, to do it. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, quote, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that the ghost may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy, but they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded, and they are therefore enslaved just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. Elsewhere, Lewis questioned the Bible's teaching on hell, saying the Bible, quote, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration but of finality, whether this is eternal fixity implied, endless duration, or duration at all, we cannot say. And so he rejects the hell of Holy Scripture. He makes it a hell of man's own mind elsewhere. He ponders maybe hell's just in, in your mind and you're... you're separated from God because you've locked God out. Um, and it doesn't last for eternity even. Maybe there's eternal, or not eternal, but maybe there's annihilationism like the Jehovah's Witness cult teaches. He ponders such things. But he, because he has set himself up as the authority and not God's word as the authority, he rejects the just wrath of God in hell, that God is literally pouring his judgment on sinners in hell. Which, by the way, when we were dealing with his position on atonement, he made that clear. He mocked that just like Tim Mackey mocks it. They can't let God be just and holy, pouring his wrath on sinners in hell, nor can they let God be just and holy, pouring his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross on behalf of sinners. They are rebels, false teachers, and heretics. And more time would only prove it even more Clearly. Why preach such a thing, as I said at the beginning, for the protection of Christ's church? So that no more testimonies will come from our body, or never, no testimony will ever come from our body. That I was reading C.S. Lewis, and it was my gateway drug. It was my entrance to Roman Catholicism. As is the testimony of many. And again, I warn, it's not just a gateway drug to Roman Catholicism. It's a gateway drug to all sorts of heresy. All sorts of apostasy. For C.S. Lewis was not a Christian. He was a false teacher and a heretic who comes in the guise of a Christian. But he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have, through all the ages, protected your church. We thank you that not one will be lost from your hand. And nevertheless, Lord, you have called us to defend your church from those who rise up from within and those who come without. And you have given such a bold example of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1. Lord, may we have that same heart to love the church, to love the sheep of your fold, and to protect them from heresy and heretics, no matter how famous they might be. And Lord, may we, out of love of Christ above all, declare, define, and defend his gospel, no matter how famous a sinner and a rebel comes against it, Lord. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.